Well, we have the privilege of going back to one of the most helpful passages in the entire New Testament, and that's Romans 14. Here we have one of the clearest, most comprehensive teaching or instruction in all of the Word of God about Christian liberty and matters of conscience. And uh, we started looking at this uh, passage last Sunday, and I told you that it begins here in chapter 14, verse 1, and it goes all the way through chapter 15, uh, verse 13, and we read the entire section last week just to kind of get it all out there in front of us, but this morning, I just want to read the section we're going to be looking at this morning, and that's verses 13 through 23. So Romans 14, starting in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love, Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Father, we submit our minds and our hearts and our lives to you today and to this text of Scripture that has authority over us. And I pray that your Spirit would work in our minds and hearts to illuminate us, to understand what he inspired Paul to write here and that we would see this passage in its historical context but also see the practical application for for us today and that you would help us to experience uh, the sweet fellowship, the deep fellowship, the strong fellowship that comes when a group of people gather together and know how to agree to disagree on things that are secondary don't really matter at the end of the day. Lord, would you help us to grow in this as a church for your glory so that we could experience the unity that you intended for us. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, in our mixed-up world where there are so many clashing opinions and diverse lifestyles, the Bible serves as the only trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live. 
It's filled with clear instruction and exhortation and direction about a myriad of things that we need to know and, and do, particularly those things that are critical or essential for our salvation. The Bible also commands and condemns certain things that are clearly right and wrong and are not open for debate, like lying and stealing and cheating and committing adultery. But there's lots of things that the Bible doesn't directly address or explicitly say is right or wrong. There are issues that are up for debate, debatable issues. These are often referred to as gray areas, anything that is not clearly black and white in Scripture. These are amoral, non-essential, secondary matters of the conscience. In other words, God gives each of us the freedom to decide whether or not these things are right or wrong for us based on how he leads and directs our conscience, whether our conscience convinces us of something or convicts us of something. And in Paul's day, these things involved eating certain foods and observing certain holidays. In our days, they, they, these things include things like dancing and drinking and dipping and hairstyles and tattoos and piercings and entertainment choices and schooling choices and wardrobe choices and musical preferences and spending decisions or the use of birth control or fertility options, even doctrinal convictions on secondary matters like whether or not you believe we should baptize babies or whether uh, the timing of the rapture and when Jesus is going to return and whether or not uh, you're covenantal or dispensational. These are things that, that we can agree to disagree on. And even though the Bible doesn't give us specific prescriptions or prohibitions about these types of things, it does contain principles that apply to these things that guide us in developing our personal convictions and that govern our use of our Christian freedom. And some of the most helpful practical principles are found here in this section of Paul's letter to the, Paul's letter to the house churches in, in Rome. And I mentioned this last week that the Roman house churches uh, back then were made up of both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And the Jewish believers had been saved out of Judaism and they still felt the need to abide by the dietary restrictions and follow the calendar of holy days that was prescribed by the law. The Gentile believers, on the other hand, had been saved out of paganism and they had never been exposed to the diets of the Old Testament law or the holidays, the holy days, and so they felt no need to adopt any of these Jewish traditions or, or practices. And so this created some tension and conflict between these two groups and threatened the unity of the churches. And so here in Romans chapter 14 and 15, Paul explained how Jews and Gentiles with different convictions and preferences about secondary matters of Christian freedom should accept and defer to one another. Now, less than 10 years before Paul penned these words, he'd participated in the first church council held in Jerusalem in AD 49, where these principles were originally established. I want you to take your Bible and turn back there for a second with me, Acts chapter 15, where we find the account of the Jerusalem Council. I'm assuming that you're familiar with this, but um, this is very foundational to what we're gonna study today uh, in the book of Romans. And so uh, here we have a, a portion of God's word uh, talking about 
how Gentiles are saved and what they must do to join the church. And so here we are in the book of Acts, which is really the history of the church, which started off with a bunch of Jews getting saved. And, uh, and then uh, every so often, uh, the, the Gentiles got saved. And then all of a sudden, they saw this big influx of Gentiles getting saved and joining the church. And it created a, some confusion as to uh, how they should function together as Jews and Gentiles in the church. And so notice it, what it says in chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren there at Antioch, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here's our, what, what's referred to as the Judaizers. Uh, these were men who were adding to the doctrine of grace, to salvation by grace through faith alone. They were saying, hey, in order for you to be saved, you have to be circumcised. And they were telling that to the Gentiles, that uh, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Verse two, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas had some others and others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. And therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. For some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, unlike the Judaizers, these Pharisees that are mentioned here, they were, they were true believers and uh, they, they were not insisting that circumcision was necessary for salvation, but that believers were still obligated to get circumcised and observe the law. And they had yet to realize that, that the ceremonial, ceremonial aspects of the law, which were so highly revered and so faithfully practiced by uh, many of the Pharisees, were merely shadows of, of Christ and became obsolete after he died. And so these Pharisees here in verse five, I think were a lot like the weaker brothers that we learned about last week in Romans 14, who for conscience sake, continued to keep the Jewish dietary laws and celebrate the Jewish holy days. Now notice James' conclusion here after uh, the apostles and Paul in particular, Paul and Barnabas um, explained, hey, we've got these, this, 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 these, all these Gentiles are getting saved. And uh, we need to figure out what we're going to tell them because they're, they're, they're joining the church in droves. And, uh, and so notice James's conclusion in verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And he quotes from the prophets about God using the Jews to save the Gentiles. We've learned about that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But then look at verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So from a doctrinal standpoint, Jewish Christians, James was saying here, should not expect Gentile Christians to be circumcised or keep the law. But from a practical standpoint, 
James concluded that Gentile Christians should defer to Jewish Christians by abstaining from offensive practices. And he listed three things specifically that Gentile converts should abstain from in order to not become a stumbling block to their fellow believers who were Jews. They were to abstain from food offered to idols. They were to abstain from sexual immorality. And they were to abstain from strangled meat or bloody meat, meat that wasn't properly prepared. Again, these were not requirements for salvation, but requirements for fellowship between Jewish and Gentile believers. And these guidelines were given to help them get along with each other without offending one another. I mean, just think about this. If every time the church gathered, the Jews self-righteously judged the Gentiles for not keeping the law, that would be offensive to the Gentiles and cause division in the church. But what would also be offensive and divisive is if Gentiles selfishly and carelessly ate food that Jews considered unclean. And so out of love for their fellow believers, they should be willing to defer and alter their eating habits for the sake of unity. All the leaders that were present there at this Jerusalem council agreed and they with what James said, and they drafted an official letter to serve as a formal statement from the council to be distributed throughout the churches by Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas. Look at verse 28, and this is what the letter read, or how the letter read. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Well, almost 10 years later now, Paul was still communicating these principles to the churches uh, that he wrote to in order to show how unity and diversity can coexist within the body of Christ. And like the Jewish and Gentile believers in the first century, we have a similar uh, challenge because all of us come from different religious backgrounds, denominational backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. We have different customs, we have different traditions, we have different upbringings, different experiences, different testimonies, all of which have colored our perspectives and conditioned us to believe certain behaviors or practices are right or wrong, and they've influenced our preferences and our convictions. The question is, how are we supposed to get along despite all these differences, our differing perspectives and preferences and convictions when it comes to matters that the Bible neither commands or condemns? Well, Paul tells us how to pull that off. Here in Romans chapter 14, and 15, he gave three lessons that we all need to learn in order to achieve and maintain unity with fellow believers. And as I mentioned last week, if we as a church can learn these lessons, we will enjoy a much deeper, sweeter, closer, stronger, richer fellowship with one another, even though our personal opinions and preferences and convictions may be polar opposites. But what are these three lessons? Last week we looked at the first lesson, instead of judging others, accept them. Instead of judging others, accept them. And we said there's three reasons not to judge but to accept one another. Verses one through three is because God accepts us. Uh, Number two, 
Christ is our master, verses four through nine. In other words, I'm not your master, you're not my master, Christ is our master. We serve Christ, not one another. And then finally, God will be our judge, verses 10, 11, and 12. Ultimately, we will stand before God and give an account for our lives and uh, really what he thinks of us is all that matters. So instead of judging others, accept them. This morning, we're gonna look at the second lesson and that is this, instead of harming others, love them. Instead of harming others, love them. And this section here, verses 13 to 23, is directed to the stronger believers. Now, we mentioned this last week. Paul addressed the weak in verse one. Now, except the one who is weak in faith. And then he said in chapter 15, verse one, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And so he mentions the weak and he mentions the strong, but he's never really specific about who the weak person is and who the strong person is. And so we're left to figure it out based on the context. And from the context, I think we can conclude that the weak in faith are those that do not fully understand their freedom in Christ and or they have a sensitive conscience and feel some type of compulsion or obligation to do certain things or to not do certain things that the Bible doesn't specifically say they should or shouldn't do. They would be represented in this text by the Jewish believers who were focused on diets and days. The strong in faith, on the other hand, are those who understand and enjoy their freedom in Christ and or whose conscience has no scruples or hang-ups about doing or not doing certain things that are not explicitly forbidden in God's word. And these were the Gentile believers here in the churches in Rome. Now, it's easy to put the weaker brother in the negative category and the stronger brother in the positive category. In other words, it's better to be stronger than weaker. Well, the context, though, tells us that the weaker brother and the stronger brother are both acceptable to God because they're both trying to please and honor the Lord. Notice verse three. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. They're both acceptable to God. And then verse six, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does it for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and, the, and he who eats not doesn't eat for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. And so they're both trying to honor and they're both trying to please the Lord, but what dishonors and displeases the Lord is when the weak impose their personal preferences and convictions on others and use them as the standard to self-righteously judge other spirituality. And what also displeases and dishonors the Lord is that when the strong flaunt their freedom and arrogantly look down on those who don't adopt and participate in their preferences or convictions. Those who have weaker faith tend to not allow others to enjoy their freedom in Christ and they're they're critical, they're judgmental of those who have stronger faith. Those who have stronger faith tend to abuse their freedom in Christ and are insensitive and inconsiderate of those who have weaker faith. And so God expects something from both the weaker brother and the stronger brother. He expects the weaker brother to grow and mature in their knowledge. In other words, the weak aren't supposed to stay weak forever. 
And sadly, there are some people who kind of qualify as the professional weaker brother. They're just, they're just content being weak and having these scruples and these, uh, these hang-ups about things that the Bible really isn't clear about. God wants them to grow out of that and, and, and broaden their knowledge of what the Scripture says and inform their conscience of what truly is right and wrong or what is a, a gray area. At the same time, God expects the stronger brother to grow and mature in their love. The strong are supposed to be patient and loving towards those who are weak while they're in progress, while they're in process. And I think the mark of a mature believer is that they know the difference between essentials and non-essentials. And they know how to defer to others who have a different preference or a different conviction. And based on what Paul said next here, in verses 13 through 23, the, the stronger, more, more mature believers have a greater obligation to exercise their freedom responsibly with their weaker brother's spiritual welfare in mind, and even be willing to limit their freedom to avoid offending others or causing others to stumble into sin. Or as he mentions, Paul mentions here, to hurt them. And so how do we avoid harming one another? How do we avoid hurting one another? How do we avoid hindering others? Well, there's five ways that we can avoid harming or hurting or hindering others. And you have them there in your notes and you can follow along and take notes as we go. But I want you to notice that these five ways to not hurt or harm or hinder one another um, are really kind of mixed up in these verses. They're, they're, they're kind of uh, joined together at different places. They, they're repeated uh, at, different, at different places. And so it's easy to kind of uh, get confused here as you go down. And so we're gonna be not just doing a, a traditional line-by-line, verse-by-verse exposition this morning. We're gonna be looking around kind of in, these, in this section in more of a topical way uh, to kind of pull these verses that go together uh, under one of these, uh, under each of these points. So the first way to avoid harming or hurting or hindering someone is to not cause them to stumble. Don't cause others to stumble. Verse thirteen. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this: not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. And so if you were here last week, you uh, will remember that verses 1 through 12 is really about evaluating our attitudes and actions towards the conviction of our fellow Christians. Now, in verse 13 through 23, this is the other side of the coin. This is about evaluating how our convictions and our preferences affect our fellow believers, In other words, the stronger believer should be careful not to use their freedom selfishly or carelessly without any regard for their weaker brother. In fact, rather than insisting on our right to exercise our freedom in Christ, we should gladly limit or forego our freedom out of deference and concern for the weak. And so Paul said here in verse 13 that we need to resolve, I like that, rather determine this, I'm gonna resolve to never do anything that might trip up someone else's faith or cause them to become trapped in some sin. Leviticus 19.14, interesting little phrase in the law, 
You shall not place a stumbling block before the blind. I mean, that's just cruel. You think about that. Somebody that's blind, right? And here they come walking down the street, you know, and you're like, hey, watch this. Let's put this rock in front of him, see if he trips over it. Oh, that's brutal. And so that was part of the law. That's the heart of God. Hey, don't be mean. Don't be harsh. Don't be brutal. Don't be cruel. And in the same way, we're not supposed to do that with the spiritual walk of someone who may not see things as clearly as we do. They might be blind to some of these things. And so we don't want to put a stumbling block there and, hey, watch this, man. We're going to trip them up. We're going to get them to, get them to do something that you know, they don't necessarily know they're not supposed to do or that they, it's okay for them to do. And it may be we have good intentions in that, trying to kind of, kind of, trying to loosen somebody up a little bit, right? You're, you're just too, you know, wrapped around the axle about this thing. I mean, you need to lighten up. And, and so you want to bring, bring someone weaker along by maybe coaxing them to enjoy their freedom in Christ. Hey, take a sip. It's not going to hurt. You know, take a, you know, take a toke of this cigar here, you know, uh, or hey, try some of my bacon, you know, my pork ribs, right? I mean, these are victory meats, right? We're so grateful. Jesus died on the cross. We can eat bacon, right? I mean, not to trivialize the, the cross of Christ, but the point is, hey, we don't have to be bound by all these Old Testament Jewish dietary laws. Jesus gave a lot of warnings in the Gospels, but one of the most solemn warnings is found in Matthew 18, verses six and seven, where Jesus said this, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to what, you remember? Stumble. It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Wow, God takes this matter of being a stumbling block to someone very seriously. He says you deserve to be, to be drowned to death if you cause someone to stumble. Notice he goes on later in chapter, or excuse me, verse 20. He says, all things are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. In other words, it's better to limit your freedom rather than to impede your brother's spiritual progress. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And here we have, I think, the clearest passage in the New Testament about um, being, being a, or not being a stumbling block. And it's in the context of meat being offered to idols. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 7. Well, let's start in verse 4. 1 Corinthians 8. 8.4, therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, <clears throat> the Father, <clears throat> excuse me, from whom, all, whom are all things and we exist for him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all are all things and we exist through him. <clears throat> However, 
Not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. In other words, it really doesn't matter whether you eat the meat offered idols or not, because at the end of the day, there's no such thing as an idol. And so while it may have been presented to an idol, what's that? It's a block of wood. It's not real. So whether you eat or not, it really doesn't matter. But, verse 9, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for, those, for whose sake Christ died. See the similar language here? And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. It's a sin to be a stumbling block to someone else. I've applied this principle in my life personally in regards to drinking. And as someone that, who God has placed in a position of spiritual leadership and who's required by God to set an example for the rest of the flock, my personal conviction is that drinking is just not an option for me. And I, I realize that some of you might see me out at a restaurant with my family and having a glass of wine or a bottle of beer and it wouldn't phase you at all. Wouldn't think twice about it. But there may be someone who sees that and concludes, well, man, if it's okay for the pastor, well, it must be okay for me and that might be an issue for them. They, they might not be able to handle that and it ends up ruining their lives. It ends up ruining their marriages. It ends up ruining their families. And so I take the stand with Paul. Listen, I'll, I'll never do it again if, if it's gonna cause somebody to stumble. It's not that big of a deal. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. If you do or you don't. But hey, if you can be on the safe side, play it safe, right? Be on the safe side and don't put yourself in a position where you might put somebody else in spiritual life in jeopardy. Now this conviction hasn't always been easy to... Um, explain to people uh, and not let it become awkward because when I first got here to Texas, uh, some dear couple uh, invited us over for dinner and we're standing there uh, in their uh, kitchen area, kind of just doing hors d'oeuvres and things like that. And he looks at me, he goes, man, I make a mean margarita. Do you want one? And uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, I just laughed. Because here was a guy, you know, and, and again, I think he was young in the Lord at the time. And uh, he didn't even think twice about asking the pastor if he wanted a margarita. And it was a, it was a non-issue for him. And, and it was a non-issue for me too. And I was like, hey, you know what? I appreciate it. No thanks. And uh, 22 years later, 
I live in Margaritaville. So go figure. So the first principle here is don't cause others to stumble. Number two, don't force your personal convictions on others. Don't force your personal convictions on on others. I, I just shared with you a personal conviction. And it's not my place to force that conviction on you. If that's not what God's worked, how God's worked in your heart and in your life, that's between you and the Lord. Notice what Paul says in the next verse, verse 14. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So Paul made it very clear where he stood personally on this issue of debatable matters. That, that anything um, that was unclean or off limits for Jews, which he was, by the way, he was one of these Jewish believers, it was a non-issue. He, he knew it was, everything was clean. All this stuff that the Jews were hung up about. And Paul applied his own advice, verse five, remember from last week, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So from God's point of view, eating meat bought in the market was totally fine. Again, back to 1 Corinthians, there's a lot to say here in 1 uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. Again, in the context of meat offered to idols, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Don't ask, don't tell, right? Why? For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Genesis 1, verse 31. Everything that the Lord made was what? Or is good. Um, Mark chapter 7. Jesus made it very clear that it wasn't the stuff on the outside that made you unclean. It was the stuff coming from the inside. Mark chapter seven, verse 14. There's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Uh, Acts chapter 10. Right before the Jerusalem council, Peter was up on the rooftop having this vision And God kept bringing down all these non-kosher animals in this blanket. And in this vision, God said, eat them. And Peter said, no way, I ain't eating those things. Those are unclean. Those are not kosher. That that would violate the the law of God, your law. And he had to to do it again. He brought them down a second time. He said, hey, I want you to eat these. And, and, And Peter was scratching his head going, I don't know what this lesson is I'm supposed to be learning. Well, while he was having that vision on the roof, some guys knocked on the door and they were for, from Cornelius, this Gentile general who was seeking the truth about God. And they said, hey, our, our boss wants you to come and tell him about Jesus. And so Peter went and he sat down and Cornelius shared his testimony up to that point about how he had got to the place where he wanted, he was a God-fearer, but he wanted to hear the gospel. And, uh, and so Peter shared the gospel and 
Cornelius and his whole family get saved and Peter's like, oh, I get it now. God was preparing me for the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. That these people that we all thought were unclean, right, are no longer unclean. 1 Timothy chapter four, Paul mentions how false teachers are, are, are um, famous for forbidding things, forbidding marriage and advocating abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. And he goes on in 1 Timothy 6.17 to say that God created all things for our enjoyment. He made all things for us to enjoy. Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure. Well, not everybody shared Paul's personal conviction and so he didn't flaunt it. He didn't force it on others, but he kept it to himself. Notice back in Romans 14, what he says in verse 22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. In other words, what you believe about gray areas or non-essentials is a private matter between you and the Lord. And you know, this was, this has been tested in my life recently because our kids know my personal conviction about not drinking and there's never been alcohol in our house. They never saw it growing up in our house. And, and uh, next thing you know, uh, one of our kids goes to um, Conrad Hilton School of Hotel Restaurant Management. And guess what they teach you there? They teach you about food and beverage services and management. And some of the classes are, the assignment is you have to brew your own beer. And you have to ferment your own wine. And so next thing I know, I got beer showing up in my refrigerator. Next thing I know, I got wine being stored in, in bedrooms, you know. And I'm going, what? It's on my counter now. I'm like, what, what's going on here? How did I lose my house, you know? And... Uh, and, and I had to really wrestle in my heart and my mind, what was going on in my heart? What was frustrating me about that? That there was alcohol in my house. And when it came down to it, I had to admit that I was frustrated that our kids didn't adopt my personal conviction about alcohol. But they have been taught that the Bible says it's not a sin to drink, but it is a sin to get drunk. They understand that principle. And I pray that they're living by that principle. And I would much rather have them know that and, and let that guide them rather than just adopting dad's personal conviction because it's between you and the Lord. That's what the scripture says. And so don't impose or don't force your personal convictions on others. Thirdly, don't destroy or tear down others. Don't destroy or tear down others. Notice verse 15. He says, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. The operative word here is, of course, love. Why? Because love thinks of others 
above yourself. Love puts others before yourself. Galatians 5.13, which Galatians is really the, 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 the main book in the Bible about Christian liberty. And in Galatians 5.13, Paul said, for you were called to freedom, brethren, do not uh, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And notice the strong words that Paul used here, very strong words, to emphasize the danger of being destructive and divisive when exercising your Christian liberty. And how much God hates it when we're, when we're responsible for destroying our brother in Christ or dividing the body of Christ. He uses the word destroy. Do not destroy with your food, with food uh, for whom Christ died. If, if Christ loved them enough to die for them, then don't you think you should love them enough not to destroy them? Notice verse 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Instead of bickering and and, and separating over non-essential things, we need to make every effort to pursue peace and, 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 and harmony within the body. Ephesians chapter four talks about the building up of the body of Christ and how God gave some pastors and teachers and evangelists to, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. He says in verse 15, speak the truth in love or to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And so we need to be careful not to destroy or tear down others. We're supposed to be building them up. That's the exact opposite of what God has called us to do. And then number four, and this may not be as obvious on the surface, but we have to drill down a little bit to see this, and that is don't lose sight of the mission. Don't lose sight of the mission. Verse 16, therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So what is this good? He's saying, therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. In other words, don't let your Christian freedom, your freedom to do something that the Bible doesn't specifically say you shouldn't, shouldn't do, right? Don't let that good be spoken of as evil. You say, how could that be spoken of as evil? Well, if an unbeliever sees you as a Christian hurting another Christian, causing them to stumble, causing them to trip or fall into sin or be trapped in some sin because of your cavalier 
attitude when it comes to Christian freedom, they could conclude that the church is filled with a bunch of unloving people. And it'll, it'll just be a bad witness for Christ. And that's what he's talking about when he says, for the kingdom of God. We're talking about that God is building his kingdom here. Bringing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are totally different. And he's bringing them together and they can sit together and have fellowship together and have something in common together. And that is supernatural. That's miraculous. I mean, you, you, you go outside the, the, the doors of this church and that's not what's going on in the world right now. There is chaos and there is, there is fighting and there is anger and there's disunity and division and, and all sorts of clashing going on. But you come into this haven of unity or as that's what at least Christ prayed for and desires for the church. Man, it sets us apart. It makes us different. It catches the attention of the world. Hey, what's different about you people? How, how come you guys get along so well even though you're so different? And he says, well, the, the way to do that is rather than focusing on external things like food and drink and clothes and tattoos and where your kid goes to school or doesn't go to school, Paul's reminding us here of the eternal realities of the gospel that he spent the first part of this letter describing, righteousness, Christ's righteousness that he gives us and peace, peace with God and the joy that we have because the Holy Spirit dwells within us and is helping us mortify our sin. You may remember me saying this way back at the beginning of our study that this book, this, this book of Romans, which just looks like this doctrinal treatise, this theological tome, is really just a missionary support letter in disguise. That's all this really is. And Paul hoped to visit these churches in Rome on his way to Spain and he wanted them to partner with him in extending the gospel to Spain and beyond to the uttermost part of the earth. But he knew as long as they were squabbling over these petty secondary matters, man, they'd lost sight of the mission. And he didn't want to show up to a church that was totally ingrown and, and infighting. He wanted them prepared to be unified, a unified force to launch him into Spain with the gospel. But sadly, we Christians are oftentimes just like the Pharisees. We all have a tendency to major on the minors. And we lose, we're, we're just focused on the wrong things. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, when, when Jesus was exposing the the, 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 uh, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and he, he gave this list of eight woes. One of the woes is in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. In other words, you, you, you're, 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 you're tithing little bits, little tenths of your spices. You're being nitpicky and yet you neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You're, you're so busy, you know, counting out little pieces of herbs and, 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 and uh, mint and dill and, and spice that you, you're not even, you're neglecting the bigger issues. And then he said this, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. What a great picture that is. 
You're, you're sitting there so fastidiously, I gotta make sure I strain this and make sure it's all purified and clean and I gotta strain out the little bug, right? And, and you're just swallowing a camel whole. Some of, some of you may have heard that expression, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? You familiar with that statement? Well, there was actually a poster years ago that uh, was in Christian bookstores, and in the foreground of that poster were two old saints who were down on their hands and knees, seemingly in a discussion or more likely an argument about something on the floor between them. And their appearance cast a negative spell on the scene. They had dark clothes and they were wrinkled and they had unhappy faces and tense bodies and they had argumentative expressions and gestures. And this, this, this part of the poster was very clear at first glance. And, and you immediately were drawn to discover what, 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 are, they, what are they looking at down there? What's the, what's the thing that they're disagreeing about? And as you got in closer to that picture, you discovered that stuck upright in the floor between them was this ordinary sewing pin. And on the head of the pin, the artist had drawn an innumerable host of tiny angels and, and, and suddenly the men's preoccupation was evident. And they represented the church, really of all ages, engaged in a fruitless, endless debate over the unanswerable question, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? I think that question has served to represent those occasions when the church loses its focus and becomes overly involved in debatable matters to the detriment of the church. You think, well, that looks like a, sounds like an interesting poster, painting, but not very compelling. But then if you got closer, even closer, and you look past the two men arguing and you look past the little pin with the angels on top. You had to look at the background image. And the foreground of the poster gave, away, gave way in an upper corner to a horrifying sight. And I'll, I'll just read for you how it's described. An image of a cliff leading up to the precipice of an abyss was a long line of naked Long line of naked human beings with abject terror and fear written on their faces. The line was obviously inching closer and closer to the cliff, up the sides of which were licking red hot flames of fire. At various stages of descent into the flames were human figures as they fell off the edge of the cliff into the flames. And the author goes on to say this, upon taking in this image, the import of the poster was fully realized. The church, represented by the two crusty old theologians arguing over a totally irrelevant and unanswerable issue while humanity, stripped bare of all hope and righteousness, was falling steadily into the pit of hell. The message is a powerful one. How often do we get sidetracked into debating disputable matters with one, with one another at the expense of a world that is waiting upon us to deliver the good news of the gospel, the power of God unto salvation? Beloved, I hope that is never true of this church. That we're so fixated on nitpicky little issues that we totally forget 
why we are here. And as people inch towards a Christless eternity, we're here fixated on silly, stupid little things. But if we stay focused on the kingdom, notice, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Listen, a skeptical world is watching us right now. And they wanna see how we live, they wanna see how we treat one another, how we get along or don't get along, and if they see us bickering and biting and devouring one another over silly external things, they're gonna blow us off. When the church is divisive, the world is dismissive of Christ. But when they see us getting along, even though we're very different and loving each other by limiting our freedom at times and deferring to one another, it's a powerful testimony and it makes them want to be part of God's kingdom work. I want some of that. I want to be, I want to know that. I want to experience that. We don't have time to to look at it, but you can write down 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, where Paul talks about limiting his freedom limiting his freedom for the sake of Christ and for the cause of the gospel. Paul said he became all things to all men so that he might save some. In other words, he, 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 this wasn't, you know, this is the verse released back in the 80s. And, and again, I'm, I'm a product of the 80s, okay? So talk about your background, you know, coloring you, influ- influencing you. I mean, I'm an 80s rocker, okay? That's why I just came out of that, okay? And, and, and so, you know, back in the day when the Christian rock movement started, that was the verse that, that these Christian rock bands were, were using to kind of defend their actions and why they were dressing up in spandex like all the worldly rock groups like Striper, right? Uh, it, it was, hey, we're becoming all things to all men. We're becoming as much like the world as we, as we possibly can become. Now, while I don't, didn't agree with that argument, I might have liked their music, I didn't agree with that argument. Um, because Paul was not talking about becoming like the world to win the world, he was saying, no, I'm gonna limit my freedom. I'm gonna not do certain things so that uh, I don't offend people, that I don't limit my audience. And he said in verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And so we need to remember here, don't lose sight of the mission. And then lastly, the last way we can not hinder or hurt or uh, harm one another is don't violate your conscience or someone else's. Don't violate your conscience or someone else's. Romans chapter 14, verses 22. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So this is an important issue, the issue of conscience here, and and our goal should be to live our lives with a clear conscience. Paul said that on a number of occasions in the book of Acts and the book of 1 Timothy that he had lived his life with a clear conscience. And I think here when he says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, I think he's talking here, he's addressing the stronger brother. And he's saying, listen, you as a stronger brother maintain a clear conscience 
when you enjoy your freedom in Christ without offending others or causing them to stumble in their walk with Christ. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not for faith. Now he's talking to the weaker brother. He's saying, listen, a weaker brother maintains a clear conscience when they don't give in to the peer pressure to do something they believe is wrong, but they do it because everybody else is doing it and they didn't want to be the only one not doing it. So the strong sins, if they seek to influence the weak to change or to compromise their convictions and causes them to stumble in the process. And the weak sins, if they go along with it, even if they're not comfortable with it. So if you're convinced that something is sinful for you, it is sinful for you, even if it really isn't. Why? Because you're violating your conscience. And God uses our conscience to convict us when we sin and we must never ignore our conscience or if we do, we'll sear our conscience and it won't, we'll, we'll, we'll make it ineffective. What Paul was talking about here, it wasn't necessarily somebody who seared their conscience but somebody who had an oversensitive conscience and it wouldn't allow them to do something that the word of God allowed. And notice he says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Listen, even if you're incorrect in your thinking that something is sinful when it really isn't, if you do it, it is sin because you had to go against your conscience and you had to do it, you had a rebellious heart. So if you can't do something without hesitation or without reservation, then don't do it. And the old adage is, when in doubt, what? Don't. When in doubt, don't. Now, I want to just say this. Our conscience is not infallible, okay? Because it's not perfectly informed, right? It lacks knowledge. So it's not always right to do what we think is right. Sometimes we do something that's right and our conscience is not informed and so we're not guilty, even though we should be. But it's always wrong to do what we think is wrong. It's always wrong to do what we think is wrong. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 27 to 33, we looked at that last week. It talks a lot about the conscience. That would be a good thing for you to uh, maybe read. Um, or how about I just read it because it is really critical here. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wanna go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake, but if anyone says to you, this meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's conscience. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be Saved. In other words, you need to be concerned not only about your own conscience, but about your brother or sister's conscience. Their conscience needs to matter to you as much as yours. I told you last week about Spurgeon and how he had a thing for cigars. And I read somewhere this week that at the height of his fame, Spurgeon was walking down the street in London and he saw a sign outside of a shop 
which read, quote, we sell the cigar that Charles Spurgeon smokes. And in that moment, he saw that, he realized that his freedom to smoke a cigar might cause others to stumble, and he immediately gave up the habit of smoking cigars. It's part of the story I hadn't heard before. See, the bottom line is this. Others' growth in Christ is far more important than our freedom in Christ. Your growth in Christ is way more important than my freedom in Christ. And your freedom in Christ, or excuse me, uh, your freedom in Christ is not as important as the growth of the person that you're sitting around. The corporate unity of the body of Christ is more important than any of our personal opinions and preferences. Martin Luther said it so well in his little treatise on Christian freedom. He said this, a Christian is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. And all the stronger brothers go, amen. But he said this, a Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to all. It's a beautiful balance. It's both and, it's not either or. Right, you're free, you're free Lord of all, you're not subject to anyone, but at the same time, you're the most dutiful servant of all and subject to all. And again, it takes a lot of discernment, takes a lot of prayer, sensitivity, and maturity to be both and the same. At the, at the, be both at the same time. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this passage that is just rich with so many practical truths that guide us in deciding what's best for us in these gray areas and also that, that govern how we exercise our Christian liberty in light of our brother and sister around us and being sensitive to their conscience. And Lord, I just ask that you would uh, help us sort all these things out. There's just so many applications that come out of this text. And so I pray your spirit would, while we've all been given one, one present, if you will, today, this sermon, that, that as we open it all up and, and seek to apply it, that we would be amazed at how many different things come out of that package by way of application. And that you would make us a, a balanced unified, mature, healthy church that never loses sight of our mission, which is to be outwardly focused, not inwardly focused. Focused on the gospel, not on the petty arguments within the body of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.